Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Barry. How are you? I'm doing very well, as well as possible in these times, I think. That's how well I'm doing. Um, So why are we here today? Why are we here in this mediated space? We're going to talk about E.M. Forster's uh, 1909 story, The Machine Stops. And you're going to tell us a little bit more about that story, but let me just sort of kick it off. You're going to tell uh, tell everybody the gritty details of this. I'm going to ru- I'm going to ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> you're oh right right right. You, you'll talk about that. Uh, so let let me just say a couple things about the story itself and when it was written, and how Ian e. Forster and how it relates to the British writer. Uh, early 20th century British writer, Ian Forster. So very quickly, Ian Forster, English writer. Uh, Most celebrated novels are things that if you came of age and you were interested in English lit in the 80s or 90s, you were kind of living at a moment when there was a kind of rebranding of Forster stories. So with all of them with Helena Bonham Carter, it seemed. Um, So there were adaptations of Howard's End and um, I guess there was an adaptation of Passage to India too, but I don't remember it. But I certainly saw the adaptation of Howard's End and Room with a View many times. So um, what would you know from these stories? These stories were basically, and this is relating to the machine stops. Uh, these stories, I guess roughly, if you had to characterize these stories, Forster is very interested in the fate of the educated English middle class. And the sense this class has, growing sense of this class, you know, intellectual, basically the elite professional class, um, the class that in England that is university educated. But especially in Howard's End, the trick, uh, you know, what Forster introduces to these stories of middle class life and family life and relationships, uh, what he's what he introduces is the sense that this class all of a sudden has a consciousness. So the drama in most of Forster's stories, um, the theme, the motif of Howard's End, he continually, you know, the, the characters are always gravitating around this phrase, only connect, only connect. And how's that relevant to Forster? It's relevant to Forster in the sense that this middle-class family, I mean, it's not strange for novels, especially 19th century British novels to represent middle-class families. But what's new with Forster is that he talks about them gaining a conscience. So in Howard's End, the drama is that this this middle-class family starts getting interested in a working-class family. And the the tragedy, actually, there are tragic results that ensue that I'm not going to talk about here. The tragic results ensue because this family, especially uh, Helen, well, actually all the sisters, the Schlegel sisters, um, they get a new consciousness, a new awareness of all the people in England, and there are many, obviously, who aren't privileged. And they have the sense and the kind of guilty awareness that they exist, um, that that they're to use the trendy word, not the trendy word, the current word, just the trendy word, they're privileged and they're uneasy about being privileged. Now, 
that's kind of giving a little context about Forster. But then the next thing to tell about the story, I think we have to say is that this story is in many ways kind of total break. It, it is. And total, and total, uh, total rupture from the standard Forster story. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I was just going to say it, it, it really is a total departure because the, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll give a quick synopsis of it in a moment, but um, you know, if Forrester is focused on connections and class consciousness, class consciousness, right, and 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 sort of the awareness of 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 class membership and the privileges that it bestows, uh, this is a hundred and eighty because you know th there this just reeks of um, isolation and right. um, I, I right. you know what will we say uh, almost an ambivalence and an indifference. Um, to all things, um, at least as they regard to connectivity. So um, let me let me just sort of provide a brief overview uh, of the short yeah. story here. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, dear listener, fair warning, I'm going to spoil everything. So um, it if you're interested in reading it, now might be a good time to pause and then read and then and we should visit. say it wouldn't take forever for, it's just it was i think i think the, the intrepid the, reader to read right the pdf of it that i read was i think 25 or 27 pages long so it's it's a good size story but it's not terribly long but basically um the story was written in 1909 but we don't have a date on the story uh it it, it just sort of you know he it's not set in any particular context <laughs> other than right. Um, you know, where we find it to be. So it, it, it follows a, a woman named Vashti and her son, Kuno, who um, live, all of humanity lives underground at this point. And they're basically, uh, they exist almost exclusively in a room, right? And they're able to leave, they're able to move, but they live in these rooms where everything is available to them. And it, it's interesting because it's 1909, it's written, but it really reflects uh, a scenario that pretty closely resembles our own current, uh, in the sense that domiciles, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in the sense that they, they communicate via uh, an apparatus that is not totally dissimilar to zoom or other video conferencing um, is, you know, devices. Yeah. devices. Um, so they, they speak, uh, through screens, there uh, they attend lectures. Uh, um, Vashti is a lecturer who speaks about music, um, and the, the, the but the human, the actual physical interaction is almost completely done away with, and they interact with each other through all these devices via what what's just referred to as the machine, right? And so. They push a button and their bed appears. They push a button and music happens. They push a button and um, the, the, the screens appear and they speak. I am, you know, they push buttons and food happens, right? So everything is delivered and accessed through this machine that everyone has access to in their own little room underground. Um, they are isolated from each other and um, they are not, in, that's it. That's pretty much their situation. So um, Vashti gets a message from her son, Kuno, uh, who wants her to come visit him. And this is, and she resists it. It's not just talk to me, tell me what's going on. He doesn't, um, they don't speak for a period of time. Eventually 
she goes to visit him. And to do this, he lives in the other end of the world. So basically, she pushes a button and the uh, EM, the 1909 EM Forrester version of an Uber shows up. She pops in, <laughs> drives her to I a think of that, but you're right. But it's it, you know, uh, it drives her to uh, a platform <laughs> where she hops on something that seems to be essentially a blimp, right? That ferries her to the other side of the world. There's an interesting moment during her journey where um, something happens and the attendant touches her, actually goes to steady Vashti. And so they make physical contact and she is appalled, right? right. Like, how dare you touch me? Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a real uneasiness with about physical contact, about, about physical contact and even, um, you know, physical or, 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 or interaction. Um, sure. you know, or unmediated interaction, I would say. Yeah. Um, can, can I stop you just to underscore that point, just to underscore it, that, that we, we have that, that episode that you described and it's a striking moment in the story, but am I right to think, uh, I think I'm right to say that that sense of human, that fear of human contact is something that permeates Vashti's character and everything about Oh, I, I think with without without a story, doubt. Right? In fact, yeah. In fact, it starts by saying by noting that you know she's pale, pale, pale white. Like no, right. you know. In fact, and when she's on the 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 ship to go see Kuno, um, the blinds are pulled. You know, nobody wants right. to look out. In fact, right. there's this great. So I, I I've skipped a little quickly. I, this is one of those things where I have to be careful because again, uh, to to fully cover the story would take more time than I want to sure. devote to it. But um, one of the the striking things to me is that when she is doing the lectures or she's attending the lectures, you know, she talks about, or she's interacting with her friends and it's a very sort of Facebooky kind of friend, right? Like these aren't, there's no real socialization. So the notion of friendship is altered here. Um, but there's this constant talk about sharing ideas and ideas. And there's this, this, <laughs> this great moment where they're flying over Greece and she's like, ah, no ideas there. Um, and so, um, anyways, they, they live in this sort of isolated, echo chambery kind of world. She goes to Kuno, uh, says, I'm here. What is it? It's a horrible trip. You know, a, a woman touched me. Uh, this was this was atrocious. And uh, he tells her. And so they're face to face at this point. And he says, I've been to the surface of the earth. And uh, he had mentioned earlier that he was thinking about taking such, such trips. She says, OK, he's like, no, no, no. I, I snuck out, right? Like I didn't take the respirator. I didn't I have authorization. I was not authorized by the machine to go. Thank you. To go. And uh, so he tells her this story about how he sort of makes his way down the tunnel and finds a little vent that he thought went to the surface and he goes up there and he makes this blind leap that will either uh, lead him to grab onto something or uh, he will miss whatever's there and he will fall to his doom, but it's worth the risk. And he does it and he finds himself on the surface and he sees people up there, which is um, a not expected, but b uh, you know, counter to even what, what they deemed possible because, you know, again, he needs the respirator and the authorization and the surface is supposedly dead. Um, anyways, he is, captured uh by what is called the i get the, the mending apparatus right like so this is an aspect of the the machine that fixes the things that break or go wrong and kuno in going to the surface has done wrong and violated the um you know the the workings of the machine or the process through which life happens 
and um, is brought back. And he is transferred from his space on the other side of the world to a different space, which happens to be very close to Vashti. So they don't speak for a while. She goes back. Um, he contacts her and says, hey, I think the machine's going to break. She says, this is nonsense. Well, the machine does start to break. And uh, it starts first with, you know, um, air smelling not so good or this aspect not working, that aspect not working. And, uh, you know, the people learn to live with it. They accept it. They certainly, you know, we can, we can grant the mending apparatus time. It's been working so hard. It's made everything so wonderful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the machine is breaking. People learn to accept it instead of, you know, they, this is life. We go on without it. Eventually the machine does break. It stops. And uh, the, the story wraps up. Um, Kuno, who lives close to Vashti, his, his little cabin, his, or excuse me, his little room is near hers. He comes to her at the very end. Um, and right before uh, everything ends, they have this realization that, oh my God, the machine is breaking. All of humanity is going to die. And uh, I believe it ends with one of the airships coming in and crashing and bringing everything down. So everybody dies a horrible death because the machine has broken. And so the question- A happy ending. Uh, well, an ending, <laughs> certainly. Um, so, you know, as, as we read it, as, as I read this, uh, Barry, I remember we spoke and I was like, okay, what do we do with this? How do you, what, what do you want to talk about with this? And the thing that struck me and, and mm -hmm. so, um, uh, you know, is this seemed like a true horror story. And um, I was thinking about it. I was like, my God, there are profound parallels between the mm -hmm. circumstance that Forrester creates mm -hmm. and the way that we live now. And so, you know, I'll, I'll throw the question to you. I see this as a modern day horror story. Mm-hmm where are the infrastructure the machine breaks and then if it breaks man there's there is no life without it and so um you know what's your what, what do you think of this well you're asking the genre question is this a horror story or is this a science fiction story we would have a problem yeah. calling it a science fiction story because the term doesn't exist yet right but let's let but there is certainly an established tradition of um, you were looking like you. Did you well, no, I was going to say even even mm -hmm. as even if we wanted to try and call it science, science fiction, fiction story, uh -huh. that's fine. But you know, um, 110, 113 years later on, mm -hmm. this doesn't look like science fiction. This looks a whole lot like my world. This looks a whole lot like your world. And um, so, even if it was intended as science fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's become is that what you're but i'm trying to figure out when you when you're asking so you're asking the genre question this is a horror story or is it not uh i sense that there are two things but aren't there two things in play here there's a question about did he mean to write a horror story in 1909 or is the horror that you're finding in the story and i agree with you it's kind of a chilling story uh i mean yeah i think any reader is going to find these recognitions of their own experience and maybe an awareness of the horrible aspects of 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 the current day experience not 1909 experience but is so is that what you're 
when you were talking about horror, I'm trying to isolate what you mean by horror in this. Is the horror for us or well, is it also for Forrester? So here's here, here's my here's my take yeah. on that. Yeah. I don't see that I see, I imagine that as he wrote this, this mm -hmm. was whatever his version of science fiction might have been. Right. Sure. This this is an right. unrecognizable reality. Right. I think the question that came to me, so the question I'm asking you. Mm -hmm. is not so much a genre question mm. but you know one of the things that we get on here to discuss is you know media right what, what right. how in theory and so the question that i came away with here is gotcha. really what is the cost of technology and convenience mm -hmm. right because here we have a society that becomes so reliant on it that when it breaks, they are literally unable to function. The machine, the, mm -hmm. the very physical world that they depend upon crashes down and crushes them all. And that's, and that's the aspect of the horrible. That's a and major that, aspect of the horrible. Story. Well, it is. It's, it, it's the fact that as it breaks, they not wait. Aware of it. Well, they are, but they wait for the machine to fix itself. They're right. literally rendered impotent. So, hey, machine's breaking. Yep. Hope and we find itself. that horrible. I do. I, I and yeah. so so the horror. I don't. I don't know that he could have written the horror into this in a way that would have resonated then as it does now. But so the, I mean that was the question I came away is what is the cost of all the convenience? I mean our focus now is always on privacy, on um, equality, on access. Right. Access. Our, 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 our concerns, our concerns are give word. me more. Can everybody get this? Can we spread it? That's, Whereas that's if, great. That's if you point. if you look yeah. at it in this situation, like, hey, come on down to your room. Everybody's going to get crushed real quick. Let's make sure we've got a room for everybody. You know, and so um, I, I think that in some ways this and I'm not saying this is necessarily uh, accurate, but I almost feel like this is painting a very different picture of technology than the one that we tend to think yeah. of today. Yeah. And it's showing a scenario where the implications of the reliance on technology, I don't, we have to ask different questions. And that's, yeah. And so that, that's, and so that, that was my take. And I'm curious as to how you see that. Well, I think I'll, I'll pick that up and, um, and address what you're, I think what you just, well described was the stories. So the predictive power of the story and that for however he did it, he was able to describe certain things in this fictional world, which really resonate with our time, with our experience of our, our lived experience in our particular moment. And that um, because we're seeing it through the mirror of fiction, right? We're keenly aware of the unnatural, potentially horrible, grotesque elements of the experience. And I think that's what you were describing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to add two more horror things to this. Oh, let's do it. Two, let's add two more horror things. And it's a more a direct answer to your question a couple of minutes ago. Um, because I think there were two other horrors. I want to get your take on this. Whether you describe one horror, I'm gonna I'm gonna put forth maybe two other horrible aspects of the story that that Forster describes and, and see what you think. So, the, the first one, my first comment 
is kind of based on, and not, not in the story, but as I was listening to you, you know, synopsize the story and, and, and recount the story, you know, one of the things that struck me was your mention about friendship and that you characterize, and I think you're dead on on this, that you characterize that, so Vashti is in her cell and she's telecommunicating in some way with her friends. And you very quickly said, like, you know, it's kind of a Facebook friend, right? So that I think is one aspect of the horror of the story. And it's incredibly predictive. And because friendship, I mean, here's what Forster somehow foresaw, a moment where, because you have technological mediation, that there was the possibility that friendship will become a simulacra of friendship, Ursan's mm -hmm. friendship. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what's in the story. So, and you automatically, and I think you're, you're, like I said, I think you're dead on when you said Facebook friend. We're used to this distinction between, well, there's friendship, but, and then there is also the telecom friend uh, that Vashi has. Right. And what's really amazing and horrible is how easily Vashti and us, we, we're, we're used to that. That sounds, okay, yeah, I know. I have Facebook friends, and then I might have one or two other friends of a very different caliber. But we internalize that, that divide, and we, that's second nature. Yes, I'm going to have a lot of false friends here, Me, technological mediated friends who are not friends in the old sense. Um, so, and I think that's meant to be a kind of horrifying, I think we see that when we see that reflected in the mirror fiction, mm -hmm. we're, we're maybe made aware of the, I won't say horrible aspect of it, but the uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable awareness, right? When you see it in the mirror, you see, wow, you know, we've kind of internalized and normalized, that's the word, right? We've normalized the situation um, where, um, our, where friendship, in a sense, we, I don't want to say, is it too much to say we gutted the meaning of friendship? Well, we changed it or altered it, or we're, we're willing to put up with friends in a completely different way from the traditional. But see, I think, I think, I think this is an interesting problem because, you know, it's, you, you use the term false friends. And I think that that sort of speaks to a certain prejudice we have here. Mm -hmm. Um, she has a even more distant relationship with her, <laughs> with her son. own flesh and blood son. Her son right. And uh, when she finds his, you know, when he tells her about his exploit, his trip to the surface, she's appalled and doesn't want anything to do with him. I mean, it's right. like she lists there, there's a sense in there when he's right. telling the story that she's intrigued and it's impossible to tell whether the intrigue is intellectual curiosity or a mother's concern, but regardless That's of which- Interesting, interesting. I think you're very right there. Regardless of which of the two it is, man, she gets past it quickly and yeah, yeah. goes back to her world. And so I think the other thing that's really, really um, spot on here, this speaks to the echo chamber. You know, I'm going to be comfortable with the things that satisfy my expectations and the machine, there's even a bit in the story that talks about this, where they're talking about the best knowledge is not firsthand knowledge. No, it's you know, the other the, idea, the ideas that people give you. It's like the best knowledge is fourthhand yeah. knowledge. I don't know yeah, 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 exactly. which hand right. it is, but you don't right. want someone who's seen it 
You want right. to read a book by a guy who heard a story from someone who told him something about somebody he heard about who saw it, because that way the information will have been vetted. That's oh, that's exactly right. And and it's that like the more media once you introduce another way to think about it, maybe once you introduce the problem or the existence of mediation and knowledge, and of course there was never a situation where knowledge was immediate, but still Forster is pointing to this situation where the, the fact that knowledge becomes a criteria for knowledge, as you say, that it's mediated. The more fucking mediated it is, the better, yeah, right? Well, that it becomes a new criteria for betting knowledge, right? Right. I mean, I have, I have, I have a funny story with my kids where uh, we'll get into a disagreement about something and I resist the urge at all Call, you know, at, at every at every turn, I resist the the because I told you so. Right. So I always ask some questions. I say, look, who are you going to believe me or your own eyes? Right. And uh, this is one of those situations where Forrester's sort of putting that. I mean, I, I ask it as a joke. Right. Like, are you going to believe what I'm telling you or are you going to believe what you saw? Think about it. Here. <laughs> right. And, um, right. Right. and I'm, you know, I'm doing my best to raise interesting children. But in, in, in Forster's world, that's really the situation. And the machine right. is telling you, do not believe your own eyes. You cannot believe your own eyes. The best ideas are ideas that are tried and true, right? Like there's, there's, there's the, the idea of invention is, is, is terrifying, which I think, you know, ultimately uh, leads to the enslavement of these people at the hands of this machine right. that, you know, eventually can't fix itself. Okay. So, Let's get let's get back to horror one last time, or, you know, to answering your question about horror. So the first horror that we were talking about is the fact that, and, and you're very right. I was talking about Facebook friends. You had mentioned that, but the evaporation of relationships, or the, uh, I guess the fact, yeah, I'll say evacuation. That that the notion that human relationships get hollowed out. It's not just with her teleconference, Vashti's teleconference, it's with her son. That it's a very narrow, it's a very thin, it's not a very thick or robust notion of relationship anywhere. Right. Not just in the teleconference, but also in relationship, you're exactly right, with her son. So and see, I, I that's one I, thing that's horrible, right? Right. And I see, I mean, I think that, that we have to resist the temptation here um, to say that obviously we have lost depth and meaning in our relationships because they're mediated. I mean, I, I don't yeah. think that's fair. I think that what's, and I don't think necessarily that's what Forrester's saying. Mm -hmm. I think his argument is that not, not that a mediated relationship is, is a hollow relationship, mm -hmm. but what he's saying, I think is that this mediation is creating some sort of constraint or encourages it, it impinges upon the the ability to have ideas as if somehow perhaps the ideas, those firsthand ideas of which Kuno gets a glimpse before he is grabbed and dragged back underneath, yes, right. somehow exist on the surface in a natural world. Mm -hmm. And that this unnatural world of total mediation mm -hmm. creates a scenario where the best ideas are mediated are recycled and revisited I, I think so i'm wondering if he's not making some argument here about you know the the echo chamber uh which is certainly a thing that plays in our current you know world being a an offshoot of the machine mm -hmm. 
and that yeah movie. i think he's definitely saying that so michael what do you think is the cure of this it, or what what is rather i'm not asking you to answer the million dollar question does forster seem to suggest like so what's the cure for the echo chamber is is going to the surface empirical experiences empiricism you know direct contact with the world outside you know above ground and a direct contact with experience or direct experience of ideas or of thoughts or the world is that is that the opposite of the echo chamber or what well, i i forced her have an idea of like what's the positive thing that's being missed well this? i think the positive thing that's being missed is that the machine's going to eat itself we're all going to die because we're stuck in the machine, but fortunately there's people on the surface who are gonna rebuild the world for us, sans machine. Well, but that, how's that a positive uh, alternative to the machine? Means well, you had the, the positive, what you just said suggested that the positive reality is a reality that replaces the machine. And I don't think you believe that. No, right? no, no, I don't, about, I, yeah. I, I don't, I was, I was being slightly sarcastic, but I think that his argument is that, um, you know, if we have the machine, we're going to yeah. rely on the machine. Right. And if we rely on the machine, we're going to lean into it heavily because it's going to make things easier. It's going right. to give us what we want now. It's that instant yeah. hit of dopamine now. Right. Right. And that eventually, uh, in, in short order, I mean, you know, there's, there's, they, he's clear, right? Like the machine was built by humans. This was originally, um, I don't know, it was probably originally of a blender like oh look i can make this quickly and then it becomes something else and something else and something else um so i, I think it's certainly a sort of a a, a a cautionary tale about our engagements with technology all right so i i want to return to the a question i i asked at the beginning of this which is you know uh as i was reading it i said that one of the things that really made me think was what's the cost of uh, our reliance on technology and convenience. And so I, I, I kind of, to return to that question, I want to tell you the story about how I read this, the story of how I read the story. And um, so I went out uh, last week and uh, I just got a mountain bike. And so I decided I'm gonna go take the mountain bike out and I'm gonna go get, get lost for a little bit. And uh, I did, I rode for about two hours and I came back and I read the story and immediately I was like, oh my God, this is A, a horror story. But then B, there was this sense of, oh my God, I'm so glad I went out and spent time in nature, right? I didn't, you, I didn't look at my phone, but I had it with me. Uh, you know, I didn't talk to, <laughs> I, I was out, I was completely out. And I remember just thinking how different the world in the woods sounds and looks and feels. I mean, it was a profound difference. And so, you know, in thinking about that question, I guess my, my takeaway for this, like what, what's the takeaway from this is that, um, you know, is what, what is the cost of the technology in the community and is it worth it? And so um, I, I think that the cost that we've seen that, that Forrester puts in front of us that I can't disagree with is, you know, though there's an ease of connectivity, we lose the depth. And though there's an abundance of access we, we lose our self-sufficiency. You know, I think about what happens when the Wi-Fi goes out or what happens when my phone doesn't have reception, right? I, I mean, I, I hate to sound like I'm catastrophizing the world, but these are massive inconveniences that are way out of line with what uh, I, I feel like they should be. I mean, I'm old enough to have had a, a history that predates the internet, right? And a technological disaster for me then was like, 
my pen ran out of ink. I mean, they were easily solvable. They were not these kind of life stopping things um, that they feel like now, you know? So to me, the takeaway is that he's, he's not wrong with, with, with how heavily invested we are. The problem is, is the cost worth it? And I got to say, yeah, you know, like I'm not advocating that we go back. I love Amazon. I love Google. I don't want to live without them. I don't think we're better off without them. But I think that the message is real. And it's that by leaning so heavily into these things, we become terrifyingly dependent upon them. And I don't know how well we'd do if we suddenly lost them again. What about you? What do you, what do you think of this? Uh, my takeaway, I'm going to do, what do you call it? I guess a preview or a, a trailer for um, a trailer for uh, a future episode. A sneak peek. A sneak peek. Thank you. A sneak preview of a future episode. I think it's going to be my takeaway because what the story I started reading, and I think Michael and I will be talking about it soon, uh, George Simondon's essay on technology and technology and the, you know, well, the title of it escapes me, but I'll just say this. It's about, it's, it's trying to read, he's doing this amazing thing uh, about rethinking our relationship. He wants to ambitiously rethink how human beings think about machines. And one of the things he criticizes is not just the hammer metaphor, i.e. the idea that technology is merely a tool. Heidegger's hammer. Heidegger's hammer, thank you. Uh, but you know, it's interesting, we'll talk about this. He doesn't mention Heidegger at all. And I wonder how, whether or not he came to his insights independently of Heidegger, something maybe we'll, we'll talk about later. But anyway, um, for Simenden, part of the problem, the big part of the problem of machinery, and it causes, for Simenden, I sense, it causes all the discomforts you're, you're talking about that we've been talking about and that Forster is mentioning in the story, is that we have, we, we've developed, we've evolved really piss poor ways of thinking about machines as objects. So we either think about our machines as tools, which is limited, and you're right, Heidegger kind of trailblazes path from what he says about a hammer. A hammer isn't just a hammer. But it's also this idea, he doesn't like the idea of the robot either. Now I'm just getting into his argument. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure, but his con, his his critique of the robot is, it seems to be robust and subtle in ways that I haven't grasped yet. But the, the core idea is that the robot is basically otherizing the machine. That when you think of the robot, the robot has a hollow inside, it has no inside, but it's a mechanism that functions like a human, but there's no humanity within it. He doesn't like that metaphor. He thinks it's, and Forster actually is using that metaphor when he capitalizes the machine. It's like it's all this robot with no subjectivity or no interiority um, except what we give it. And so in other words, I think that what Forster is reminding of uh, is reminding us of here is that we have a bad relationship with machines and that's what you that was your takeaway. But I wonder how much, I guess my takeaway is, how much is our bad relationship with machines caused by our inability to really think about them as they're in as they are, 
the phenomena, what the machine represents as a phenomenon. Man, that's a that's a whole nother discussion. And so as it shall said, be. So it shall I, be. As I said, it's a preview of where we're going. Well, Michael, I really enjoyed this discussion. I hope you're well and hope you continue to be well. I'll see you soon. You got it, Barry. Thank you so much. Hey there, one more thing real quick. If you have questions or comments about what we've talked about, go ahead and drop us an email from our website at www.criticalmediastudiespodcast.com. Or you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Critical Media Studies Pod. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.